man, listen, nothing's changed today. Jesus is still saying the same thing, follow me, be my disciple. And today it still holds the same weight. Still today in the call of Jesus is the call not to just salvation, but becoming the hands and feet of the ministry of Jesus Christ. The same ministry that healed the sick, that set the spiritual captives free, that gave sight to the blind and gave hearing to the deaf. You can partake in the same miracle journey, but you simply have to respond like Matthew. Now, how did Matthew respond? It says, so Levi got up and followed him. I mean, it's just that simple. By the way, that's the salvation call. <laughs> like, I know we have all this prayer, and even I can show you on the back of this, but the reason, like, I didn't include a prayer on the back of this, because it's not the prayer that saves you. When the heart turns to Jesus, only Jesus can see that. There are people that are going to be in hell, listen to me, that have said the sinner's prayer. And if you don't know what that is, it's probably a good thing you don't, because here's all you do need to know. Salvation happens here, and only Jesus can see it. There are people who have said words in an altar, who live a life that looks like it's all good on the outside, but in here they've never given their heart to Christ. They still live a life uh, captive to this world and to the things of this world. Like John the Apostle would go on to later say, they walked with us, but they were never one of us. Or like even the Gospels would say when they said that there are many that will call upon the name of the Lord, but he said, I never knew you. They said they will do great things and exploits. They'll be pastors more than likely, leaders in ministry, and God will say, I never knew you. Because it happens here. It doesn't happen when we just say the verbal words. No, there's something that changes in here that only God and you know, and nobody else knows. I remember, uh, um, you know, saying the words uh, for the first time, Lord, come into my heart, be my Savior, be my Lord. And I remember that moment. But can I tell you, I wasn't really heart changed at that moment. I had made a physical vow. That physical vow had allowed me to attend church. It allowed me to come and believe in Christ. Like I, I could physically tell you, I'm going to believe in Jesus. Have I experienced or encountered the living God yet? No. But I'm going to believe what I have yet to encounter. And, and the glorious thing in that, I think that's childlike faith. <laughs> I have no idea about it, but I'm going to believe in it. I think it's childlike faith in the beginning, this, this walk towards the Lord. And as we walk towards the Lord, then there begin to be another encounter where I actually encountered the living God. In a, maybe in a Pentecostal way, I had uh, some, some older women, uh, two or three older women who began to pray over me. Uh, uh, and, and literally prophesy over me the spirit of ministry, who at the time I thought would have been crazy. But I can tell you something happened inside of me. That whatever was the stubborn man that I was, was broken. And I have never been the same since. And it wasn't a prayer that I said that did that to me. God did that to me. And because he's done that to me, I will never be the same again, ever, ever. And this is the same call that God gives every day, not just on Sundays, as some would believe. <laughs> it's the same call. There are some decisions in your life like this that require blind faith. My first decision for me was all blind faith. I had no idea. God said, follow me. Okay. Right, But if you want a story like the ones you read in the Bible filled with miracles and dangerous adventures and the exciting life-changing moments, sometimes you've got to take a blind leap, uh, blind leap towards Jesus. 
There's no other way. At some point, you've got to be okay with what you don't know and look at that as the fun part of life. You, I mean, really, man, I mean, the, all the, the movies that you go watch and all the stuff that we read today about adventures and stuff that we would love to be on, that we would dream about going on in these things, there's always a significant amount of unknown that could be dangerous, life-threatening, and all these things. But sometimes you got to jump out there. Most people I meet are unsatisfied in their life. They know that they're not living according to what is possible. They at some point have settled whether it's into a job, into some culture mode where they know their place and they will, they're going to make basically little to no impact into the world. And why do they do it? Because they also uh, will be spared the uncertainties of Christianity is why. Because to follow Jesus is to walk into the unknown. To follow Jesus means you might end up in another country. I mean, there, there are guys that I've met here locally, families that didn't go to seminary, but all of a sudden God has called them to another country, and they're about to pick up their kids and relocate to an entirely another country because the invisible God said so. <laughs> I'm, it, it seems crazy, but this is the life. When Jesus says, follow me, be my disciple, then it becomes a, a series of significant unknowns where you must trust God. Gerald Brooks has a tendency to say every time I attend a leadership meeting in his church that we only grow to the level of our pain threshold. If that's the case, then very few have a pain threshold that is required to change the world. Because most of us are hoping to stumble upon a great moment rather than head straight towards one. We're hoping it meets us somewhere along the way while we're leaving our mediocre life that somehow we'll stumble into somebody else who maybe is leading this or heading this way. We're always fascinated by those who've given so much the question is, why aren't we? Why aren't we? I'm challenged by this constantly. What, what, how much sacrifice can I? How, Lord, how far can I go? How far? How much pain can I take, God? Right? And I'm, believe me, God will help you with that one. God will help you. Very few of us, right, are like Peter, James, and John, and now Matthew, striving forward. Think about what he's asking. Peter, I need you to leave your, you got to leave your family, buddy. Peter, I need you to leave your wife for a little while. I, I, I'll heal her before we go, but I need you to leave them for two or three years and just live with me. I'm going to tell you right now how many ministers be like, uh, that can't be God. There's so much in the Bible today that I think preachers would say that's not God. <laughs> Things like this, Matthew, I need you to just leave it all behind, buddy. I can hear the preacher right now. Dude, if Matthew leaves it all behind, I lose my 10%, Jesus. I'm telling you, very few. James had his head cut off, by the way. Peter's hung upside down. We can keep going about where all the apostles ended up, but it's not going to be good. John ended up on a deserted island. Nobody wants the end results, right? But here's the thing. They changed the world. You still say their names today. They are the martyrs of our faith. They have changed us. The gospel message they brought out of that carried into the world. We still live, thrive on, and press on towards today. Right? Jesus is always looking for the right candidates. Hear me this morning. Jesus is always looking for the right candidates. The question is, is who is he looking for? 
What is he looking for? And I think this passage kind of covers that too, because verse 15 records that Jesus sat down for dinner with many other tax collectors, and this is my favorite part, disreputable sinners. Amen. It goes on to say that there were many people of this nature that followed Jesus. The Pharisees referred to these people with a special word. In the Greek, it was called hamatolos. It's an adjective meaning especially wicked or stained with vices and crimes like drug addicts, thieves, and murderers. My favorite is the English word here in the New Living, though, when they just says scum. Nice one. It's a good one, right? This is some perspective. I mean, you ever thought about that? As Christians, we're known more for our struggle than for our salvation, unfortunately. And it's not different then either, is it? They don't see them as people who could become something. They see them as what they are in the moment. They, don't, they see them in their struggle, and we're defined many times by our struggle. So people go to church. The irony of, of, of Christianity is this, that it's very muddy because it's full of people. God said, I'm going to make people the church, not the building and not the names, not the nonprofits, not the 501 stuff, not the government stuff, but people are the church of God, and it's messy it's messy on purpose to remind you also where the beauty comes from. It comes from the Lord. If you see anything beautiful about the church, it's the reflection of God. It's the reflection of God upon it. Because there's nothing really inherently beautiful about us except that we're created by our maker. That's what's beautiful about us. There's so much trouble. There's so much issues. There's so much stuff. We're, we're full of stories of men like this who were foul-mouthed sailors who had a job and were doing okay, but they were mundane people at best living ordinary lives who God called out and lived and pressed into the extraordinary. People who were uh, uh, like Peter or like John who were just like basically John and Andrew, if you meet them in the gospel, they're like, they're like groupies. They're like John the Baptist groupies. They're hanging out watching John the Baptist the whole time. They got no job. And the whole time I'm thinking, man, you're grown men. You should have a job. Hanging around John the Baptist, who obviously didn't have a house or anything else, is probably not what their parents thought. You know what? When I grow up, my son, I hope my son just follows this guy around that's out from the deserts with his big dreadlock hair, eating grasshoppers and locusts, and, and looks, you know, smells like he's never bathed. I'm sure like that's like what I wanted when I, my son to, to do when he grows up. But that's, this is their life. This is what they do. God... Jesus took this, these ordinary men, these men who'd lived, who were, uh, as the public would call them, he took the scum of the earth. The scum of the earth. Matter of fact, this morning I saw something funny, and I had to post something on Facebook. It, it was this, uh, somebody had posted this thing about how, because uh, th they're in a ministry, they have a ministry uh, called Serenity Church, and Serenity Church is not like a church, it's more, probably more like us, except to drug addicts and to gang members and things like that, back where I come from in Terrell, and uh, it's a street ministry. Their church this morning, they will have church this morning. It will exist around sitting in some chairs in a circle outside a building on the street corner. That's Serenity Church, and that, that's where they'll have church this morning. And they had posted a, a lengthy thing that said something about, be careful about being mean to these people who are struggling with drugs and addiction, all these things. These are people's kids, and these people this. And I had to post them there. Yeah, these might be the next apostles. Be mindful. The guy that you, you discredit being homeless on the side of the street, the guy that you discredit because they've been strung out on drugs for so long, all it takes is Jesus to walk by and say, follow me, be my disciple. And just like that, revival is born. And just like that, that which we threw away, God used once more. Matter of fact, there's more biblical precedence for, what, for the things that we throw away coming back to be the very things that lead us towards God. 
You don't get to just come to Jesus once you get your life figured out. You don't get to just come to Jesus when you finally got your finances together and you're emotionally stable. No. You come to Jesus just like you are, broken and messed up and lost in your sin. And in Levi or Matthew's case, a traitor to your people. Tax collectors in the Bible were commonly referred to as the lowest of the low. They were, and now this is according to a book called Hard Sayings of the Bible. It said this, they were Jews who were working for the hated Romans. These individuals were seen as turncoats, traitors to their own countrymen. Rather than fighting the Roman oppressors, the publicans were helping them, or the tax collectors were helping them, and enriching themselves at the expense of their fellow Jews. It was common knowledge that tax collectors cheated the people that they collected from. By hook or by crook, they would collect more than required and keep the extra for themselves. Everyone just understood that that's how it worked. The tax collector Zacchaeus, in his confession to the Lord in Luke 19, mentioned his past dishonesty. Because of their skimming off the top, the tax collectors were all well-to-do. This further separated them from the lower classes who resented the injustice of them having to support their lavish lifestyles. The tax collectors, ostracized as they were from society, formed their own clique, further separating themselves from the rest of society. Man, you think you got a bad job. Like, ah, my job's horrible. You don't work for the IRS. I know we don't have anybody who works for the IRS in here. Right? How many of you rip off your fellow countrymen every day? How many of you hang out with other people that rip off your friends and neighbors? It's like being an occupational backstabber. Like, what do you do for a living? Oh, I just backstab people every chance I get. I'm friendly up to their face, and then I try to make sure I rob them and steal from them behind their back. All right? Might be a bit easier to understand Matthew's heart. Can you imagine the stairs? How about the stairs from his own people? How about you can't just walk down the road? Probably without some kind of protection. Can you imagine the stares from your own family? If they'll even call you family anymore. Can you imagine wanting your life to be better? How about more loving? How about more of community, more friends and family? Because that has to be what he's missing here because the only friends he's got are crooks. You think he can trust them? They steal from other people for a living. Jesus calls out... Uh, Jesus calls us out of our loneliness. He calls us out of our self-loathing because you know he struggled with that. Come on. He calls us out of our depression and into family and into friendship and into fellowship. This is the church and into intimacy, not with just each other, but with the very God who created us. He says, follow me. Follow me is more than just walk with me. Follow me is come in, right? Come out of loneliness. Come out of this self-hating lifestyle. Come out of this depression and come into family. Come into friendship, kinship, fellowship, right? And not just with your people around you, but with God himself. It's kind of unbelievable. Maybe that's why the Pharisees said what they did. Why does he eat with such scum? Because they couldn't comprehend it. Like, well, I, that's hard to fathom. And the response from Jesus is pointed. He says, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I've come not to call those who think they're righteous, but those who... No, they're sinners. And now this seems obvious, doesn't it? And yet Jesus says it like it's profound. And maybe the follow-up statement is better than the initial statement, that there are those that think that they are righteous. 
And then there are those that know they are sinners. And Jesus has come just for the latter. I think that's a great confusion today in the church, but the truth is for that. Jesus has come for the latter. There's a lot of people who think that they're righteous. And they're in the church because that's where a lot of that stuff comes from. And I'm starting to think that the biggest challenge that we're facing here in the Bible Belt is the same thing that Jesus faced in his day. That we are facing a culture that is saturated in religion. Man, I remember when we getting ready to start this church and, and, and we're still kind of fleshing out the ideas behind it and we're getting our name together and a, a guy come up to me and, you know, there's just some people that they just say things that are mean and they don't even know it. And this guy comes up to me and goes, 242. I was like, awesome. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, 242, you're the 242nd church within a 60-mile radius of this place. You think we need another church? It's like, nice to meet you. My name's Jim. Now, that's the first thing out of his mouth to me. Not, hey, man, how's it going? Not, man, I love you in Jesus. Let me give you a hug. Let me anything. That's the first thing that came out of his mouth. We live in a culture saturated by religion. 242 churches. How many do you think in Marble Falls actually believe in Jesus Christ and are living a life that produced the fruit of their belief? 242 churches. Now, if I was to really ask that answer back from you, do you think it'd be 50%? Let me just, I just see heads around the room. Do 50%, do you think 50% of a 60-mile radius is saved? Most, I think, would say no, right? I see a bunch of no's, right? How about, let's just say maybe even 20%. Might be close, 20%. So there's 80% of people that don't believe in Jesus at all or don't live a life that produces the fruit of repentance. 242 churches. Are we living in religion or relationship? 242 churches. And there's churches that have started after me. Are we winning? Come on, man. Obviously, building more churches doesn't save more people. Our country will prove that. I think we're facing the same thing he had. Jesus was already full of a place that was cultured in religions, false religions and Judaism. Even Old Testament, they could not come forward. They could not move. They could not see the very thing that they lived their whole life studying. To me, the, the greatest thing that always hurts me when I read the Bible, especially when we get around Christmas time, is, uh, and here's why at Christmas time, this will explain a little better, that there's the wise men, right, that come from the Orient that we know of, that somehow have read the scrolls of the Old Testament, how it prophesied of the day to come, and they see the star, and they recognize immediately from Scripture what's supposed to happen, but the people who studied it their whole lives missed it. And I weep because I'm a guy who what? Studies it my whole life. I've given my life to the study of the scriptures and to knowing who God is. And the greatest fear I have is that the more I know, somehow I become less knowledgeable. The Pharisees who should know, they've been raised their whole life to know the word of God. Their whole life they've been cultured to the religion of their time, to their following after Jehovah God. That even when the Son of God stands before them, they have no clue or could fathom how it could be possibly real. Regardless of all the prophetic word, even when he shows up as a baby, they completely missed it. Three pagan oriental uh, wise men or whatever we, we want to call them there, they came out of nowhere from Persia and figured it out. 
But the people who studied their whole life went into the holy of holies. It was veiled before them. We live in a culture saturated. They call it the Bible Belt. They call us the Bible Belt, right? Texas alone is riddled with churches everywhere, yet our three biggest cities in Texas are so lost in abortion and poverty. Despite the majestic mega churches with their thousands of people, prosperous programs, and talented preachers and singers, with all of our church cultures existing in these places, there is still no revival. None. They can plan it all they want. God has to be there. You don't get to say when God arrives or when God leaves. You don't get to say that. You can, you can put a, a time on the meeting all you want, but God decides what he does and when he does it. It will never ha- matter how much we market or advertise. It will never matter how beautiful are our buildings. It will never matter how much makeup we put on our preaching or on our stage or on our faces. The only people that are drawn to Jesus are the ones to whom he calls the sick or the scum, the ones that know that they need him. I happily, I, man, I sit with scum all the time. Praise the God. I sit with sick people all the time. Praise God. Praise God, right? I saw another comment the other day that said, you know, it was giving a hard time to people who, uh, pastors who have doctors in front of their names. I'm like, well, that's great, but I'm going to tell you right now, we're all here today because of ignorant and unlearned men, and I stand amongst them. Praise God. Praise God. We've got it all wrong. We've got it all messed up. As if more knowledge is what's going to help us get to Jesus. As if the more we do is what's going to help us uh, uh, have revival and lead people to Jesus. And that's such foolishness. We're busy because we don't know what to do. We're busy because we see the void and we don't know what to do. We don't know how to fix it. But I'm telling you, the only way to fix it is to return. Return to him. We have to go back to him and say we're sorry. Like Nehemiah, we have to fall up on our knees and go, Lord, I have sinned. And the people, my people that are my people, right? Not just you. I mean like the whole Marble Falls. My country has sinned before you, and I also bear that one too. I've been a part of it too, God. I hurt. I'm burdened over it, just like you're burdened over it, Lord. For all of our time, talents, and treasures spent on making the altar easier, for making it less abrasive or beautiful. At the end of the day, only the sick know their need for the doctor. That's why it doesn't matter how pretty our altars are or how great our message is. At the end of the day, God knows who the sick are. And you can come to the altar and they can be full. And that's why today we have full altars, but we don't have a full people. We have people that will come to the altar on Sunday and sin all week. And the altar ain't done nothing for them. Nobody's down there praying with them. Nobody's down there burdened with them. They're there for five or ten minutes, and anything after that's inconvenient. Self-righteous people suffer from blindness, spiritual blindness. They cannot see that they, the dire need for Jesus. They think that just because they're consistent on church going, their ability to faithfully tithe, their participation in the programs and their Christian friendships, that they're saved and somehow sanctified. But I tell you that only those that can see their spiritual deficit and their desperate need for the cross of Christ are saved. They're the only ones that know salvation, true salvation that comes from grace and mercy. And while our sins may not be equal in the sight of men, in the eyes of God, all sin is disease and death. All of it is. 
we are equally all uh, the walking dead in need of the resurrection God to raise us from a dead heart, a dead mind, and a dead spirit. And who are you? When you hear the word of God, does your heart melt away? Or has your heart gone cold? Does this feel like just another sermon? Or are you the sick? Do you know that you have a need for Jesus? Have you fallen for the religious trap where the fruit of your work somehow caused you to separate yourself or think more highly of yourself than you should? I meet people all the time that think very highly of themselves. All the time. And a lot of it comes from our culture, our church culture. We have a church culture, especially in Marble Falls. Listen, there's a lot of things I love about it. I love that we have so many uh, churched individuals in our city council that they still pray. Because that doesn't happen in some of the big cities, guys. That, that our school board still prays. Because that doesn't happen also in the big cities. And I can tell you that I, I, I would wholeheartedly support a lot of the guys that I do know in those, in those positions. Because they legitly are seeking after the Lord. This last guy that was the uh, president of the school board before he, he had resigned, man, he was a godly man. And, and he, he didn't, you didn't hear that from his lips. You heard it from everybody else, which is, that's how it's supposed to be, by the way. I'm, well, he doesn't need to brag. He doesn't need to talk about anything. And you know, when he, when he got up and he had, a, he had like a speech where he kind of gave uh, to talk about his influence, it was Max Copeland. And he said the one thing that Max always gave that was more valuable than anything else that they had to offer at First Baptist was his time. And he talked about the time that, you know, that, that Max would spend at his house just talking to him. And how that was more valuable than anything else that he'd ever done or experienced at church. He, he didn't tell you about a sermon. He didn't tell you about the time they had a Bible study. It was times where they just sat on the porch and talked. He came wearing his red socks, said Max always wore red socks, and he came wearing red socks, and that was uh, kind of the thing, I guess. But uh, um, that's humility. Listen, for us, the part of return for us, our vision that if we return to God, we'll advance the gospel. Because the, the more we go back towards him, the more we go back to a true relationship status, not a religion status. I mean, even now, I can tell you right now, I've talked with um, a few people in here, and like we're constantly going to change things up and challenge things. That we have certain criteria by which that if we're not following this criteria, we're gonna, we'll kill it. I, I don't care if whether like we do three songs and that's all we do. And, and the other thing is this, do our songs represent the Word of God? Are we learning something through the Word of God, through the songs? Are we, are we educating ourselves, or did, are the songs self-centered? Because there's a lot of stuff that's self-centered these days. That's part of the religious culture. It builds up self. It's our nature, by the way, guys. That's the whole reason the cross was developed, to kill self. Because self is always the God that wants to take the Lord's throne. It's the one that always wants to captivate your heart. It's the one that always wants to do these things. All of this has to revolve around the idea of return. Return to what? Return to the Lord. When he says, follow me, what, do your, what does your heart say? When you make decisions in life, are you asking the Lord? Or are you just hoping it turns out all right? God, I hope you bless this. Why? Because you're doing it anyway? Have you asked the Lord this is what you're supposed to be doing? Have you asked? And listen, I would tell you this, because God, I don't think he says yes and no to everything. I think there's sometimes God says, make the decision. 
And, and I really, you know what I think in those moments, same way we as parenting, I think we understand this, and I think this is God's parenting towards us. I think God says, I showed you the way, now walk in it. So I have decisions, God. I can go through this door or this door. God, please tell me which door to go through. Why? Because you're wanting to be spared the wrong choice of a bad decision, right? You don't want to have to endure a bad decision because you obviously know yourself at that point. You know you can make bad decisions. So you're like, Lord, just tell me one door or the other. But I'm going to tell you, God would say, which one's the right one? And God will ask you more of a question than anything else. He'll say, which one's the one that's going to walk you towards Jesus? Yeah, but this one could be more prosperous, could be benefit. Then I could do some things more for the Lord. And listen, if you're not willing to do it now, you sure ain't going to be willing then. If your heart's not for Jesus right now as you walk towards this prosperity venture, it's not going to matter. You're just going to become more and even more so of what you are right now. Somebody that's always willing to put Christ off for something else. Which one's going to walk you towards Jesus? Yeah, but that might be the one where I have to struggle. That might be the one. Yeah, maybe but also be the one where you change the world. See, everybody's Matthew sitting there listening. Everybody, I mean, in this moment, man, it doesn't matter who I'm looking to, there's always somebody else off to the side here. And you're like Matthew, there's this whole crowd walking with Jesus, and Matthew's just one. He's just one guy, man, in the crowd. And Jesus looks over at him and says, follow me. And that's your decision this morning. What's that look like for you? That's your decision this morning. It has nothing to do with me. I've made my decision. It's led me here. You know, one of the things that I, that I make sure I do, uh, uh, on Saturdays we come up here, I get a lot of help from a lot of you on, on Saturdays to, to help me come up here and we set up. And, and I've had a few say, man, we can handle it, we can do this. And I, I tell them all the time, no, you know why I keep coming on Saturday? Man, I am blessed with people who would totally take, take this over and would, do, and would do this, the setup stuff. But you know Why? Because God called me to do it. And I don't ever want to take that off of me. Like that reminder that God has called me to the work of it. Right? Because this is the hardest thing I ever have to do is preach. Because it honestly, I'll be honest, it feels fruitless. More times than not, it feels fruitless. You know what my favorite things to do for the Lord? Are paint, sweep, fix things, set up, tear down. You know why? I can see the fruit of it. When you paint a room, it looks pretty good afterwards, don't it? All right? When you sweep the floor, it's nice and neat. It looks good, doesn't it? You can see the fruit of it. When you do work for the Lord, the physical stuff, you can immediately see the fruit. When you do the spiritual stuff, it takes forever. And a lot of it comes with heartache. I think about Jesus looking over at Matthew going, follow me. A lot of questions happening. Jesus knows what he can do. Do you know what Jesus can do with your life? Now, he's going to wreck it. He'll take you right out of the whole tax collector thing. Your days around the crooks are going to be gone. Except it'll just be different now. Now you'll be the one calling the crooks. And you'll stand to where one day where Jesus was. Listen, if you, if you follow Jesus, one day you will be in his shoes. When, and you will say to someone else, just like I say to you this morning, follow me and be my disciple. Amen. Let's bring the worship back in. Let's get ready for worship this morning. These are times when we when we do some of the worship songs, and 
these are times where we reflect. These are times where you like think about the word of God that's planted in you. And it's not my words. You can throw away all the words that were my words and really think about the word of God that you'd heard this morning, about the following and how Matthew just left and followed and, had, and what people thought, that religious culture of their day, man. This is the time to think about the thing that stung you this morning. And as we begin to sing in worship and as we begin to sing songs that praise the Lord, as we begin to sing these things, these will be the moments where you begin to reflect and you begin to pray and you begin to seek after God. What is God saying to you?